Life is not fair, isn't it? Life is not fair. I want you to look at the person next to you or down the road from you or behind you, in front of you, just tell them, look, life is not fair. Tell them that. Life is not fair. Some of you are saying, you got that right, buddy. I can tell you what. Yeah, you are the illustration of the inequities of life. And so how do you live when life is not fair? So we're going to talk about in the series called Courageous today. So let's go to the Lord. Um, God, we live in a society that just isn't fair, isn't nice, isn't kind, isn't gentle, but isn't right. And so uh, teach us now in your word again how to be courageous people, to do the right thing when others don't. And um, God, when, when we're the ones who aren't fair to convict us of our ways, get us gently back on the path, and treat us the way... Uh, we, we want to be, we, may we treat people the way we want to be treated, we pray, even when they're wrong. So even in the way we execute justice, Lord, may we do it kindly, in the fear of the Lord, we pray. And I pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Help us, please, teach us in your word today. In his name we pray, amen. So a young middle manager is in his office. He's worked really hard on a project, and he has really cleaned it up well. He has a new proposal for the upper tier of management, the lead of this team. And he walks in with his charts, his flow charts, his PowerPoint, his, his displays, and he says, I think we can take the company to the next level and here's how we can do it. And he introduces this product and this process. He explains the timeline. He has charts about how long it's going to take and the amount of energy it's going to take and the, 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 the manpower hours. But he, he also no, calculates out the kind of profit margin that could be the company's and just how good of a move this is. And if we play this well, he says to his managerial team, he says, if we play this well, this will be good for the community and the community will love us, so we'll create goodwill within the community and it will be a win-win all the way around. And the managerial team smiles at him and says, thank you very much, we really like your ideas and um, give us this material, we'll consider it. And so he goes back down the hall to his office and begins to work again. Two days later, a young rookie accountant goes into that middle manager's cubicle and says, I'm sorry to inform you, but you've been downgraded in your job. You no longer have this job. You have another job. It's in the basement of the building. And so you gather your things and follow me. And he said, what did I do? And he said, well, they... they the word is that you're, you're not productive, and so we're going to move you to another job. And he goes to the basement and begins a new job with less pay and no recognition, no opportunity for influence. And about two weeks later, he sees a new proposal coming from the company for a new product that looks strangely close to what he developed with exactly the same charts and the same timeline and expense and return on investment and the energy level and the goodwill it would create in the community. And the only difference is it doesn't have his name on it. It has one of the upper tier manager's names on it. And that young manager realizes life is not fair. Just not fair. 
A middle-aged woman loses her husband to cancer. And so this young widow realizes, I, I am floundering. I don't know what I'm going to do. She wants to know, do I have enough asset to make it through my natural course of life? And so she gathers her paperwork together and goes into an investment firm and says, I am a, I, I'm middle-aged, but my husband died early. I, we're, I'm not ready to retire, but I don't know if I have enough income. I, I need to figure this out. Here are my investments, and here's my retirement. Here's my savings. Tell, tell me what to do. You're the, you're the advisor. And she opens the door of her finances to a gentleman across the table who smiles and listens with empathy, and he affirms her, and he assures her, uh, yes, you're going to be just fine. And so he says, let me, let me create a plan for you. And so he develops a financial plan for her. But he doesn't hear, she doesn't hear anything for a few months, and so she calls, but her calls are never returned. And after six months, she begins to get statements, and they don't look good at all. In fact, they don't look anything close to what her initial investment was. And she wonders, what is going on? And she can't figure it out, but she's, this is new turf to her. And she's in the emotional wave of being a young widow. She doesn't know what to do. So she goes into the investment firm and sits down and says, this is what I invested. This is what this paperwork is saying. They said, no, no, this is what's invested. And, that's, and your return is very flat. But we don't have all that money. We, and it's gone. And she is that day significantly poorer than she was six months earlier. If she had kept that money under her pillowcase, she would be richer. But no, she trusted someone, but he doesn't care. The reason he doesn't care is because he got his cut early. He got his commission early. And, and so she goes home that night and realizes life really isn't fair. For her, it's her whole life savings, but to um, a securities uh, team, it's not that big of an account. It's not worth pursuing but to her, it's everything. But to them, it's just a drop in the bucket. And so they don't choose to pursue it, and she realizes again, not only is life not fair, but even the people who are watching over the fairness of life aren't fair. And you wonder why we live in a society where there's retaliation and responsive knee-jerk responses, and we ask for it oftentimes. And you could illustrate it yourself, could you not? People lie to you, they tell you bits of truth with other bits that are somewhat true, with other bits that have nothing to do with the truth. And sometimes they tell the truth, but only when it works to their advantage. And only the bits of truth that work for their argument. And it affirms what the scriptures go on to say, that the heart is deceitful, the prophet said, it is desperately wicked not just bad but desperately wicked i had you turn to your neighbor and say life isn't fair i was at this point going to say look at your neighbor and say you're despicable but don't don't do that <laughs> just hold your purse close during the prayer keep one eye open you realize we always think our generation is the worst but go back to Genesis. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, chapter 1, verse 1, right? By chapter 6, which I know is a long period of time in history, but in biblical literature, it's, you're still in the first six chapters. God is so disgusted 
with the sin and the wickedness, he wants to flood the earth and start over again. It's no wonder that David, the shepherd boy, wrote, God, keep me from the wickedness of my enemies. I, I don't want to be like that. That's why the prophet wrote, uh, we are desperately wicked. That's why when, when Peter wrote to the church, these are Christians, and he says, you put away all malice and envy and strife. He wasn't writing that to ungodly people. He wrote, you put away malice and deceit and strife and slander. He wrote that to Jesus' people. You see, the wickedness goes more than skin deep. It, it goes through and through us. Life is not fair. It just isn't. So how do you get by? How do you get by in life when life isn't fair? In fact, what do you do when you're not the one who's fair? What do you do when people around you are not fair? Well, this is what surprises me. What surprises me is that we're still surprised that life isn't fair. That's the crazy part. Because we just think people are, our, we just, in fact, if you think people love us and, and people are by, at the core of good people and kind and gentle, then I have oceanfront property in Iowa to sell to you. Because that's just not true. What surprises us is that we're constantly surprised that we're being misled. We're shocked when someone lies to us. Then we get angry. Then we go into this rage of, almost like, you know the cycle of grief and going to denial, this can't be happy. Then we go to retaliation. And it's as if we're going to make this thing right, so help us God. We're going to make it right. And that the injustice becomes an imbalance in all of our wayward ways. And we wonder why the conflict is ever-present and why there is always a violent war somewhere because it begins in our hearts. And our hearts are never at peace until we're at peace with God. Ephesians chapter 1, we heard Elaine read just a little bit ago. That, and the peace of God pours over us. But that only comes when you trust Christ. Well, in our story of Joshua, we open the pages. We're in chapter 9 today. If you have a Bible, we're going to do 9 and 10 in a combo today. What we have is a miraculous beginning. God's people cross the Jordan River. They get into the promised land. They take over Jericho, take it down. God just does miraculous thing after miraculous thing. They've been providing for years. Now they're, they've known defeat at Ai and now victory again. But now, when you get to chapter 9, by the way, now this story begins to unfold into the next stage. In other words, they're, they're into the country, their feet are on the ground, they've established some turf, now they're expanding, they're splitting the country and, and splitting the fronts of the battle. And they are a, a, a country to be feared. Now they're no longer just God's people, but now Joshua will call them Israel because they're on the property. Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. Now when all the kings of the west of the Jordan heard about these things, that would be Israel. West of the Jordan would be what we call modern-day Israel. The kings in the hill country of the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. You ought to be impressed I got through that. They went together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Stop there. Get this. They go into the promised land. They're taking it over. They're beginning to win some battles. 
There are six countries, really six uh, villages that are cities that are their own little kingdoms. And they are ganging up together. Now, do they like each other? No, they don't. Do they trust each other? No, they don't like each other. They don't trust each other. They wouldn't turn their back on each other. But they all hate one thing in common, Israel. And not just Israel, but they hate Joshua. Get this down. If you are the leader, doesn't matter if it's at home, with your family, in business, church, country, doesn't matter. Not only will they hate you, they hate the country, they will hate you. It says in the text, they go against war against Joshua and Israel. So don't be surprised if you're the target sometimes. That means you're the lead. But the only thing they have in common is their hatred. Now, that's an unhealthy kind of relationship, isn't it? I was once called in just to help a church that had started. But you know, the, all the people, it was a church split. It was, a, it was just a fragment. I, where are these people from? Well, they're all from churches from other places. And I, what do you have in common? Our hate for other churches. Okay, I, I don't think that's a healthy way to start. Do you? Begin, begin with one cup of acid. Yeah, add some vinegar. Yeah, see how that goes. It's not going to work. You cannot have just a common enemy. That can't be what creates the coalition. But that's what they have. So they go to a war against Joshua and Israel. Verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. Verse 5. But they, they, put on, they put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, we've come from a distant country to make a treaty with us. Stop there. Do you get this? They realize, if we fight them, we're going to die. And we know this, they don't take prisoners. They're going to just kill us all. And so they decide, let's go for the ruse. Let's not go with the, the crazy guys who are being together and going to fight Israel. We can't win that battle. So we will take our chances with the roost. So they get together, old clothes, old donkeys, old, old wine, old wineskin, old bread, everything, sandals, clothing, everything's old. Everything's worn out. And they load it all up, and then they go to tell their lie. Point to take home. Not everybody tells the truth. In fact, very few do. In fact, at some point, everybody tells the lie. So don't be surprised by it. And don't be surprised by the extent people go to. Keep reading. You were at 6. Skip down to verse, pick it up at 12. Because they begin to question him. How do we know you're not a neighbor? How do we know you're not just playing with us? Verse 12. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that were filled were new. Now they're cracked as they are and our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very, very long journey. Stop there. Some people will go to great extents to actually lie to you. They'll layer upon layer other layers of lies to make the first lie... Um, believable so you have to understand 
Some people are going to lie to you and deceive you, and the best thing you can do is back up and get away from them because you're not going to figure it out. It's, uh, I think I've told you a story before. Wanda and I were, uh, we were at a conference with a bunch of ministerial leaders, lots of pastors, and it's a big event. We get it all done today. We're going to dinner. Some other people from some other church say, hey, let's go with us. Let's go as a group. So we go. And uh, we sit down at a table. Or, you know, it's pretty stuffy, a lot of ministers. Um, and so uh, we sit down across the table from some people we don't know. I say, what? And, uh, say, what do you do? And she says to us, uh, well, I'm a children's pastor at such and such a church. I've been there on staff. I love kids. And it's wonderful. And I say, that's great. And what do you do to the husband? He said, well, I work for the state. I'm actually a trooper. Actually, I'm in investigations. And I, I do the background of investigations at the state level. He said, I started out as a trooper in a car. I said, oh, that's fascinating. I said, what's it like? He said, you've seen CSI? I said, yeah. He said, that's kind of it, only on the state level. Wow. So we started talking about it. And he, see, he's in a room full of pastors. Okay? And then I'm trying to figure out what he does. And I go, that is really fascinating. Because I've been involved in a few cases in my life, but that's not what I do every day. And, and he, he stops mid-dinner and, and he says, that's the problem with you people. Whoa, what, what's the problem? He said, when people talk to you, ministers, you think they're telling you the truth. He said, when people talk to me, I... I think they're lying. I know they're lying. And I went, that can't be. Oh my gosh, he might be right. <laughs> you ever thought about that? How do you know if he's lying? If his lips are moving? <laughs> he's lying. Yeah. And the trooper was right. Because our hearts are desperately wicked, we are deceitful to the core. Well, and, and he was married to the children's pastor who thought little kids could do no wrong. Think of that marriage. That was a cross-cultural <laughs> jump with ever there were one, huh? Oh, they're little angels. Not really. They're just the next wave of criminals, honey. You can just imagine what dinner is like. Some people will go to any extent to lie, and then they'll, they'll cover the lie and cover the lie and cover the lie and extend it, so they forget what the truth even looks like. You understand this? That's the self-deceived. The scriptures talk about that. I've seen that just a handful of times in life where people don't even know what the truth is anymore. They could actually pass a lie detector test because they have fooled themselves. It's just that crazy. So don't think that deception only comes in one flavor or one style. Deception specialists... We'll, we'll go after you, and we'll go after your vulnerability. And that's what, exactly what happened with Israel here. The Gibeonites, by the way, there's this city, it's, it's, Gibeon's a city, but there are little villages around, they'll actually refer to other towns around it, it'll all be called Gibeon. They had gone to school on Israel, and they knew some things. They knew that when they plowed into war, they, they didn't take prisoners. They, they just went after the whole thing. And they knew, too, that if you surrendered, then that you were slaves. So we don't want to die but we don't want to be slaves. So we've got to create a ruse that's going to keep us somewhere in this middle ground. And they knew that because they had read the Old Testament. They'd read the book of Deuteronomy. They knew. They knew what God's people would do. And that's just it. When people go to lie to you, they're going to study you, figure you out, and figure where your values are and play them against you. And so they look for a way to serve 
to survive without becoming servants, without becoming slaves. Verse 14, the Israelites sampled the provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. There's the mistake right there. The Israelites sampled the provisions, went and grabbed the bread, looked at the uh, backpacks, checked the wineskins. And by the way, when you, back in the day when they packed a wineskin, they would take fresh wine, put it in a brand new skin, sew it together, and then as that wine processed, as it would age, it would ferment, you had to have an elastic bag to give it some room. And that's why you needed a new wineskin. So these guys, if you put that new wine in that old wineskin, the wineskin would be dried up and brittle, and it wouldn't expand. And then it would pop, break. And when it did that, you'd, have, you'd lose your wine. So what they did was they actually went and got old wineskins. They got everything aged out. So there's, every bit of this ruse was thought through. So they sample the provisions, but they don't inquire of the Lord. And so they, Joshua begins to make a treaty with them. Verse 15. And the leaders of the assembly, they ratified it. So now we're locked in. And the Gibeonites knew these guys have a core value and it's that they're going to keep their word. So they knew, well, we're, we're in. We got it made. A uh, lesson to learn off here is that even good leaders make mistakes. And another lesson is that the facts are not always enough. We have to routinely seek the Lord's mind. Even when you think you know the answer, even when the evidence is overwhelming, even when you think there's no need to pray, there's always a need to inquire of the Lord beyond the facts because in all your ways acknowledge him and he will, he, he will make your paths straight. Solomon wrote Proverbs 3. And you don't have to be anxious about anything, but with everything, in every situation, with prayer and petition, you can, with thanksgiving, make that request before the Lord. You can ask the Lord, is this the right thing to do? And give yourself some time for that. Back away and give yourself some time. Because if you would just give yourself time to separate yourself away from it for a little bit, you would make a different decision. And the reason I know that is because I've done it myself. I've rushed into a decision, so have you. And so did Joshua. The only difference is, is his is written in the Bible. It's the only difference. My mistakes aren't written in the scriptures. They're not there for all the world to see, nor are yours. But we should learn from Joshua because it was just, verse 16, three days later that they find out. What if they'd taken three days just to pray about it? What if they just had taken three days just to think about it? Just to say, okay, give us some time, come back in three days. We're going to pray about this. Have any of you ever uh, purchased, a, don't raise your hand until I ask, but, uh, an appliance, a washer, dryer, a dishwasher, vacuum cleaner, um, a, a, a saw, some, a, a, a mixer, a car, big, big appliance, I guess. Anybody, but, and then like three days later, you regret it, you wish, oh man, I paid too much. Or I don't really need that. Ah, I found a better one. Yeah, I could have gotten a better price. Raise your hand or I know you're lying and you're deceitful. <laughs> You need to be honest with yourself, people. Some of you aren't telling yourselves the truth. That's called buyer's remorse. You ever heard of that before? It's where you buy something and go, oh, man, I didn't really need this. I only used it once. And I, I, I should have just rented it. I don't need to, and I have to store it, take care of it, maintain it, go find it when I need it again. I, I, shouldn't, I, I don't need that piece. 
But if you just had waited and inquired to the Lord or gotten away from the emotional rush of it, that's what happens. And stores do this all the time. They create a, an urgency about it. This sale's only on until Sunday, right? Have you seen those? Hurry now. Stock is limited, right? What do they do when they run out of stock? They go in the back room and get more limited stock. That's what they do. And, so, and I know right now some of you are saying, I sell cars for a living, you're not helping me. Get your money from the ungodly, not from the godly. Just go out, make your money. You'll be fine. We've all been through that buyer's remorse where you just, you buy it and you go, ah, oh, I don't need this, I don't want it, I shouldn't have done this. Not, I shouldn't do this. That's exactly what happened with Joshua. Joshua makes the decision, says, oh, all the facts look good. He goes to his group of leaders. They go, oh, yep, seems to be good. They ratify it. The very next verse, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard their neighbors were living. <laughs> oh, my God. How did we get taken? How did this happen? What if they had prayed first? What if they hadn't been in a hurry to make the decision? And what about us? What if we had just prayed first before making the decision? What is so pressing that I have to make the decision now that I can't stop and pray? Now, what's going to happen is this. Not only does Joshua regret it and the leaders, but now the, the congregation, the community, is ticked off because they're grumbling. Why? Because you, you let the enemy survive and we were supposed to go after them and now we've made a treaty with them. So now they're ticked. That's a morale killer. I hope, you, I hope you get this. This is a momentum taker. It sucks the air out of the room because now they're thinking, why are we putting our sons on the battle when you're just giving away the cities? It doesn't make sense. And so the people grumbled, and rightfully so. And so what Joshua does, he says, okay, what's going to happen is you're going to live like servants. You're going to be slaves. You're going to be cutting wood, splitting wood, and delivering it to the houses, and then you're going to be delivering water the rest of your lives. And the Gibeonites say, okay, we'll do that. Just don't kill us. That's how bad it gets. But you know what? That doesn't help, because now the Israelites, guess who's in the village every day? Gibeonites. People they don't even like. They don't want them in their turf. They don't want them outside their tent. They don't want them walking down the street. But they're here. It, is not, it does not go away quickly. It's what we call... Uh, buy in haste, regret at leisure. If you don't get anything else, you make the decision in haste, then you regret at leisure. And that's what will happen if you don't stop to pray. Think for a moment if they had just stopped and asked the Lord and inquired of him. And even if they just had taken the time to say, let us think about this and consult the higher calling upon us. The Gibeonites said, No that they aren't just acting in their own mind, in their own wisdom. Well, you'd think the story would end there, but it doesn't. We could turn the page to chapter 10. <laughs> and Remember the first six kings we talked about, those, chapter 9, verse 1? Those guys who hate Israel and Joshua? Well, now they hate Gibeon. <laughs> so then when Gibeon goes home at night, goes to bed, guess what happens? Those other six kings attack them. And then Gibeon sends word back, we're getting attacked, you've got to help us. Oh, for crying out loud. So now we have to get our army together and defend the very people we don't like who lied to us. You see how, how twisted this gets? Now we're defending people we don't even like who lie and were deceptive to us. We have to defend them now because we made a treaty. 
it does not go away. It just gets more and more twisted. So what are the lessons to learn? I, I jotted down five. I'm going to give them to you, and then we're going to close in prayer. Number one, keep your word. Keep your word. Even when others don't. Even when people don't fight fair. How are you going to fight fair when others aren't fighting fair? You're going to keep your word. Which means this. Don't use your word. Don't give your word easily. If you want to keep your word, then don't make your word quite so quick. But don't ever stoop to their level. Never let them uh, dictate the level at which you're going to play on the field. You set the standard. And you know that standard is before a high and holy calling of the God in heaven. If you consider yourself religious, you have to keep a tight rein on your tongue, James chapter 1. Otherwise, your religion is in vain. It's worthless. Number one, keep your word. Number two, do the right thing even when others don't. You're saying, well, I, you know, I can retaliate because they bug me. They're nasty. I don't like them. I, I have the right to retaliate. You know what? Then you'll have the guilt on your conscience for doing so. You're saying, well, they're asking for it. It's about okay for me to retaliate. You know what? That's beneath the level of not only a God follower, Old Testament. It's beneath the level of a Christ follower in the New Testament. No matter what people do, you do the right thing. No matter what, you rise above it. I'm reminded of a church. It was in the news just a couple of years ago. It's a great church. If I told you the name of the church, you, you might know it. probably would know it, but... It's one of those churches that just does a lot of good in the community, but some people, for whatever reason, just really hate them. But their hate is vicious. And so a band of people got together, started putting signs up outside the property of the church, and they'd be at the church entrance, drive-up entrance. They'd be shaking their fists with signs and gesturing with their hands and swearing at people as they're trying to drive into church. It was not a very good, like, welcome to church day, you know. Hi. And they were, you know, wondering about their lineage, what their mother wore on her feet, things like that, or what kind of boots she wore, just awful things. Well, this particular church was going to host a big event, and they knew there'd be even more protesters outside the entrance of their facility. So what they decided to do was, since there's going to be so many of them, and they're going to be there for so long, they decided we should do the right thing, which is we should give them some coffee and donuts. Now, some of you, some, even me, might say, no, we should bring a lawn hose or a fire hose. Yeah. No, they brought them coffee and donuts. And then one of the staffers said, you know what, if we're bringing them coffee and donuts, we've got to give them a porta potty too. Now, that never made national news. The protesters made national news. Coffee and donuts never did. But you know what? They did the right thing. Even when people hated them, they chose not to hate them back. Isn't that cool? Wow. So, number one, keep your word. Number two, do the right thing. Number three, engage your values, not your knee-jerk emotional responses. Uh, honestly, this story could go worse. You're thinking, this is pretty bad now. This is a tough chapter or two to get through. It's true. This is a bad situation, but had the leaders not acted and corrected it quickly, it would have gone even worse than it did. What would have happened if Joshua and the leaders had said, okay, Gibeonites lied to us, we're going to kill them all? What would have happened? Well, they would have violated their own conscience, and Israel as a nation would have known that. 
Would the enemies have cared? No, they wouldn't have cared because they would have seen Gibeon as traitors anyway. They hated him anyway. They didn't trust him anyway. So they would have never felt any violation. But the, the, the violation would have come within camp, within inside the walls of the country. So there's a justified kind of anger against Gibeon, and yet there's this urge that you want to kill him. You just want to be done with him. But the other part of it is, no, we want to do what's right. And we don't want to do the knee-jerk response. And if you act that way in anger, you're telling the whole nation, that's the way we're going to treat you, too. And is that the way you want to be treated? The answer is absolutely not. The knee-jerk response would have told the whole community of faith that the faith wasn't really real. And the values really didn't matter. And that we obey the law only works in our favor, otherwise we just do what we want. So, number three, engage your values. It means you have to go back to them all the time. Number four, extend grace to the leaders. Why? Because no one's perfect. Let me just encourage you. It, you know, you can critique your leaders all day long, but I'm going to ask you this. Every time you critique a leader, then pray. Ask God for wisdom for the leader. Ask God for integrity for the leader, sound mind, emotional adjustments, and stability, emotional stability. And every time you, you, you think to speak, make sure the word is encouraging to the leaders. Why? Because you need to extend grace, because it's tough, and nobody's perfect. And then number five, this is the lesson of the day. This is where we'll quit. Never, ever fail to inquire of the Lord. And that's where they made the mistake. They just, you know, they thought they had all the info and they didn't stop to ask God, is this what you really want? You know, some years later, James would write it this way. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, you ask God and he gives to all liberally, was one translation. In other words, he gives to all freely. In other words, there is no limit. It's liberal. He's like lathering it on and he gives it freely. In other words, he will hand it out just like he just, like there's no end to the source of this. But you have to ask, and you have to recognize, I need help. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes from jail, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, you let that request be made known to God. God, what would you have me do? I hope this week we will be people who are inquire of the Lord, even when it seems obvious, even when it seems unnecessary, even when it seems like this is a no-brainer of a decision. Lord, is this the right decision, and is it the right timing, and is it with the right people, or how could it be sweeter? How could it be better? How could it affect you, the glory of your kingdom? How could I use this to the advantage of your kingdom? Simply by inquiring of the Lord. Let's bow together for prayer and let's ask him for that kind of wisdom. Lord, we admit we cannot, we cannot live in a world that isn't fair without your supernatural help. We will never, ever make it. So we run to you. Make us the people who come to you even when we think we know the answer, even when we think we have the timing even when we think it's a no-brainer, 
even when it's just obvious to us, may we still inquire of you and not think that we know it all or that we have it all down. For some in the room, that means coming to the Lord for the very first time in personal faith. You may be realizing now, I, I need the Lord in my life because life isn't fair and I have violated my conscience before the, the Lord. I have sinned. And Jesus says, I'll be your Savior if you'll come. Just right where you're seated, you can open your heart to him and you can tell him right in the quietness of your own heart and soul, God in heaven, I, I need the Savior. I need Jesus to be mine. I trust him to be mine. To forgive me of my sin and to prepare a home for me in heaven. To give me the supernatural help that I, I don't stand a chance without. And Lord, for the work you do in our lives, we thank you. But for the work you do in our lives too, may we honor you with the decisions that we make. Because we're people who walk and talk with you every day. May that be our habit this week. We pray in Christ's name and the church says amen.